Hi friends and welcome to the Ian Khan Show. Today we're listening to a special Aftershock episode and I'm speaking with a co-contributor to the book Aftershock. My guest today is Chris Ostergaard. He's the co-founder and chief learning and innovation officer at Singularity University Nordic, which is the North Nordic entity of Singularity University. He's the author of Transforming Legacy Organizations, co-author of The Fundamental Fours. Let's go over to Chris. Welcome to the Ian Khan Show, and today I have with me a really great friend, Chris Ostergaard. He's based out of Denmark. He's in Copenhagen, one of the most beautiful cities that I personally like. And Chris, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. How are things over in in Copenhagen? I'm asking everybody about COVID-19. What are the repercussions? Tell me how are you guys doing there, first of all? Yeah, I feel always I have to emphasize how lucky I am to live in a country like Denmark. And that is actually also correct this time around. So relatively speaking, we are safe here in Denmark. I think the government reacted relatively quickly as well. So we've been in more or less of a total lockdown. But the prime minister just announced today that uh, they're opening up slightly now. We've had, again, relatively speaking, few deaths and the curve has flattened and it looks to be moving in the right direction. So I feel that we're in a, in a fortunate place compared to a lot of other countries around the world. You know, Chris, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months, I should say now, we were all moving at a certain pace in our lives with business, with life, and we were paying attention to many things. We were not paying attention to many things. But it's so uh, amazing how that perspective changes, how our focus changes because of what's happening in the world outside. How do you think the world will come out of COVID-19? What do you see happening in the next couple of years? Let's start there. So what I think will happen is is that what we're already seeing is uh, there are a lot of you know jokes and cartoons floating around on, on the internet on uh, who sort of sped up the digital transformation processes in the world and in organizations. Was it the CIO? Was it the CDO? Was it the coronavirus, right? And so for organizations who uh, have you know, been forced to move even more radically into digital transformation as our society as a whole, obviously, we're all working from home uh, now or at least most of us. So probably what that means is that, of course, those trends existed already, the move towards digital. But probably what it means is that it has sped up the pace at which more will transition into this with five, seven years, let's say, right? So while we, of course, there's another, there's light at the end of the tunnel in regards to us being able to meet physically again, hopefully very, very soon, traveling and going to restaurants, uh, tourism, all of that stuff. I'm convinced that this has really accelerated the whole move into digital for all of us, both professionally and personally, uh, to a much higher degree than would have otherwise been the case. Absolutely. And I can't agree more uh, that, you know, we're we're going towards a different world. Of course, majority of everything being same, but at least I think people have given it a test drive and people who haven't been technology savvy, they're using technology. And hopefully it creates some efficiency in our world. It reduces our carbon footprint. It does all of those good things that it's supposed to do. I really believe that it's some kind of maybe a wake-up call or maybe a great leveler, great reset, great refresh. It's one of those things where we're getting an opportunity to think a little bit more because we 
we were just so busy in the world that we live in. So I really suggest everybody to utilize this time in reading more, in doing an online course, in studying, in doing a bunch of these things that you've been constantly being let go. So a good time to do that. Let's talk about technology. So we're here because we both are contributors to this amazing book called Aftershock. And Aftershock was put together by a friend, John Schroeder. He needs to pay me every time I say his name. Seriously, I've said his name so many times. But John John Shorter put this book together called Aftershock 50 years after the, the famous futurist Alvin Toffler wrote his book Future Shock. And Future Shock was a revolution 50 years ago. It talked about this future with technology and how people will behave and so on and so forth. And so this book has 50 different futurists who talk about the future. Alvin Toffler, tell me about your experiences and your exposure to Alvin Toffler. Yeah, so uh, it was really amazing to get the chance to contribute to this book because uh, obviously I have, you know, been in the space of innovation for, I guess, almost two decades now in various shapes and forms. And so uh, the book Future Shock has always, you know, stood out almost uh, as a Bible in regards to uh, looking into where we were heading as a society and the impact that technology will have as well. And I think his predictions and his scenarios for the future, there are so many remarkable insights on his account that uh, it's just mind-boggling to see now 50 years after I reread the book and uh, it, uh, in preparing for contributing to, to Aftershock and it was just mind-boggling to me to really see how he nailed it in terms of some of these very big influential trends that we're seeing including as we were just speaking about speed the whole notion of you know the adhocracy the network agile organizations and how we would all be operating at a pace and impact so far far big than what was the case in 1970. And he certainly got that right. And uh, that was sort of what uh, inspired me to uh, take that as a starting point to look into then. So what does that then mean for, you know, the next 50 years or thereabouts? And so you also, you work with Singularity University, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Singularity Nordic, which is the Nordic entity of Singularity University. Uh, so we have our headquarters in Copenhagen and you know, service uh, all of the uh, the Nordic countries. I'm a, a faculty at Singularity University where I'm specialized in, in regards to innovation and primarily innovation in large established organizations. I recently wrote a book called Transforming Legacy Organizations that deals with this. And I'm also the host of the Corporate Innovation Podcast, uh, which is a, a Singularity University podcast as well. Yeah, and Singularity is important incredible with the number of programs you guys have, with the number of experts you've got. I've definitely interviewed uh, a few people from Singularity University on my podcast series as part of Aftershock. And hopefully I'm also looking forward to perhaps interviewing uh, a couple of more people that I've missed. But Peter, Peter Diamandis is amazing. It's incredible to see all the work you guys do. XPRIZE is amazing. It's great for innovation and to push mm. the boundaries. Let's talk about artificial intelligence. It's one of these things that we all are continuously pushing and pushing ahead. And you have a really nice model of human AI roles in the future workplace. You know, what does the future look like when it's the, the mesh between artificial intelligence? Help me understand this model that you have here. And I'm going to put this up here. I, I've yeah. uh, been reading it. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so what I was investigating and have been thinking a lot about and wrote about in Aftershock was the whole notion of, so what Alvin Toffler spoke about, these network agile organizations and, you know, the radical increase in pace and in impact that we would be seeing from organizations. And with all the technological development and we have been seeing and, and will be seeing, what does that then mean for the types of organizations that we will have in the future? And to me, there's, there's really two uh, key issues here, which is about uh, human and 
artificial intelligence. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know how far down the line, but at one point we won't be talking about artificial intelligence any longer, right? That's sort of the, the terminology, it's simply because I guess it's still so new to us. But and I guess that's a point in making that, you know, increasingly artificial intelligence and what that enables becomes, you know, natural to us or a, a default that is just absolutely basically necessary for running a company. And, and I guess we're almost already there. And, and certainly pretty soon, if you're not AI powered as an organization, well, you know, then you have issues. And thus it is, it is about AI or human execution and AI or human authority in regards to your organization. Now, who does the work and who calls the shots? And let me to develop this model here that's, you know, a, a basic two by two that sort of yeah. highlights four core organizational models that... Um, you know, we already see uh, one of them is, is still relatively theoretical. The others we already see, and we will see them in an even more emphasized version. And so th the most relatable probably is what I call the hyperlean organization. So that is your big tech companies of today. The most of the, the Silicon Valley and increasingly from other places as well, hardcore mm -hmm. tech companies that are powered by, they're almost entirely digital. They're powered by technology. They are, you know, working very hard to become AI first, all of them. So they have, to a larger and larger extent, AI execution, right? But they have human authority. And so what I'm contemplating here is that, you know, increasingly we will be able to have AI execution on more and more tasks. And the question then becomes at a certain point, uh, we might be able to give the job to the AI or have the AI execute it. And when will we choose not to give the authority to the AI? When will we choose to remain in the driver's seat as human yeah. beings? Yeah. The, that's the human versus AI authority. And, and, you know, and I guess that that becomes an ethical slash philosophical discussion. At one point, we will be able to have the AI call the shots, but we will choose based on some ethical guiding principles that know we want to call the shots at least at a certain level. But increasingly, that will mean that organizations, the hyperlean organizations, they will be, you know, have management levels of people, but won't be needing human beings for execution uh, as, you know, core staff, but will to a much larger, larger extent rely on freelancers, which is another of the sort of core forms of organization that uh, we will see, we're already seeing it, of course, but that will be by far the dominant way way of working. Yeah. That is where, of course, you have human execution here, uh, but increasingly AI authority. I got you. Now, where in, now you mentioned the Silicon Valley, that there's some kind of, you know, the early adopters of AI are in Silicon Valley. What other pockets in the world do you see adapting more towards this AI-driven world? I see a lot being done, done in Europe to, in, to some extent. You know, the Netherlands is doing something. Uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, Dubai is doing something with an entire artificial intelligence ministry. Saudi Arabia is doing something with a newly formed AI authority that's working on AI. And any particular experiences or insights? China. So probably no one, at least geographically, is doubling down harder on AI than China is. And and I don't think you can find any country in the world who wouldn't say that, you know, AI is absolutely core to the future. You will be hard pressed to find companies not saying that. And of course, they have very different levels of maturity where the Silicon Valley, in quotation marks, types of organizations 
organizations yeah. are sort of leading the game here. But that doesn't matter. They're founded in Silicon Valley or in Shenzhen or in uh, Tel Aviv or where they're coming from. Uh, that's that's really on how they are designed uh, from the get-go and their understanding uh, of technology. Where legacy organizations, you know, it's a longer journey for them, right? Because yeah. there are still, uh, again, different maturities, but they're still, you know, moving from analog to digital. And But increasingly, of course, mm-hmm. that also means that they're thinking AI from the minute they start to think about digital. Now, what about some of these really extremely large corporations that are funding AI, researching AI? They've got billions of people who use their products and solutions, and we know who we're talking about, which is great. We love their product solutions and everything's great. It makes our life so much more easy. But where do we start looking at AI as something that could fall into the wrong hands and the information Mm -hmm. people have out there could be used in a wrong way. Like where's the ethical boundary? Where's the regulation boundary? How is regulation, ethics, user rights, privacy all coming together when we talk about AI? That's the billion dollar question, right? Or maybe it's the trillion dollar question. So a lot of people are asking those questions right now, both on a societal level and enterprise level and individual level. I think there are many ethical dilemmas in here, and uh, which is also actually a reason that we are right now in the process of putting together a book, uh, which is like Aftershock, also an anthology uh, called Ethics at Work, which is exactly about this stuff. How do we move into the future and ensure that as enterprises, as organizations, we do that in an ethical manner, knowing that due to the exponential developments of technology that, you know, our powers and the impact we can have with these technologies is increasing dramatically. So ethics becomes ever more important. And there's so many questions that need answering here. And I think uh, what kind of answers we are giving will um, you know, depend on a lot of different things. Uh, we see geographically, if you look to US versus China versus the EU, there's a very, very different philosophical foundation for how we think about ethics and how we act out our ethics. So, uh, so that's like one starting point. And then, of course, you have individual organizational philosophies as well that also impact this. And the bottom line is, as we are speaking right now, this is very early days when it comes to ethics, is that most people, and that also goes for top leaders in organizations and politicians, they don't really have awareness about the importance of ethics. They don't have a language for ethics. They don't have principles. They don't have frameworks. So it's really about kickstarting these conversations to move that into figuring out what are the kinds of actions we need to take and how do we operationalize ethics that's really what's going to be absolutely at the core of it and what's challenging is that you know we've had uh, technology in the mainstream for i would say for over 20 years now at least 30 plus years we've used technology on an everyday basis and it's taken us so long to come to the point where we are right now now undoubtedly ai and related technologies will accelerate the pace of change and ai will teach itself and machine and robotics and internet of things will all come together i really don't see that happening for the next five to seven years to even 10 years. All right. The scenarios that are posted in movies and media, I think they're pretty far away based on in some pockets, maybe, yes, you might see a lot of automation. But when we look at generally AI dominating and running different things across the world, where do you see it kind of becoming the mainstream? What time frame would you give it? So it's interesting when uh, there have been a couple of studies done 
qualitative studies with relatively large bundles of experts in a variety of domains with this question on when are we hitting what uh, type of AI development or dominance, etc. And uh, I think what everybody agrees upon is, you know, how widely they agree upon the timelines for when something will happen, but that everybody agrees that, you know, it will happen at some point. I think, you know, what is, what is, uh, um, automation is one part we will, the, the coronavirus was, will also accelerate this because organizations need to double down on innovation. That's sort of the hard part because during crisis, typically innovation suffers, uh, but they also, of course, need to double down on efficiency and effectiveness uh, and that means automation and that means leveraging AI at an even faster pace than what they were already doing but then it's consumer right so it's you know it's Amazon it's Alexa that's where it's coming from right it's about you know ever more convenience for the consumer ever more customer centricity for the consumer AI uh, plays and can play a huge role in this generally speaking as consumers we you know we're suckers for convenience right if we can get it more convenient we want it if we can get it more uh, customized wants and needs we want that and that and thus whoever can provide that and you know amazon is way ahead in, in this game right yeah. now right? and they want alexa to be your uh, digital assistant that you know sits on your i don't know if it's the left or right shoulder 24 7 and you know whisper to you you know how you should uh, act and move and purchase right so they're pushing this massively. And, and, you know, we can talk about levels here, but there's already, what, 100 million Alexas out there in the world. So I don't see that stopping at all. I only see that accelerating for sure. And I think one of the core reasons for how fast this adoption will accelerate and to what extent the uh, AI assistant, digital assistants, whatever we want to call them, what role they're able to play in our lives will, to a very large extent, depend on legislation and what our governments will allow. Absolutely. I want to read something from the book. It's from your chapter. And it says, these human workers will in effect have an AI boss telling them what to do, evaluating their work, and ultimately deciding whether they deserve a raise, a bonus, a warning, or termination. I think in some industries where there's high level of automation, I don't know if they're, you know, what kind of workers will still be working in a factory where there's so much automation that technology is your boss. What industries do you see where the role of technology will be much higher? Let's say, you know, 98% of your employees are AI robots, machines, and maybe one or two or 5% are humans. So I guess ultimately it's going to come down to cost. And so in some cases you are able to automate something, but you don't do it because it's actually still cheaper to have a human being doing it, at least for now. And then, you know, at a certain point, maybe technology will be able to take over if there's an incentive to develop a cost-effective enough technology. And maybe there isn't depending on, you know, the cost of the human labor here. So, uh, but it points to the notion of the freelancer, right? Which is, you know, there's one study that suggests that it, by 20. 50% of the American workforce will be uh, freelancers working in the gig economy, right? Again, coronavirus here, that's accelerating this for sure with these incredible, terrible numbers we see of unemployment, right? And the you know, notion of a gig worker and being a freelancer is great if you have real unique skill sets. 
and you can choose your jobs and you can have a really great paycheck come out of it as well. But for the majority of people, being a freelancer and being part of the gig economy, that is need, that is not want. And that will accelerate and that will increase dramatically. And to the extent we already see with the Googles of the world, they have more contractors than they have full-time employees, right? Because they don't need to provide the same salaries and the same benefits to them. So yeah. it's much more cost-effective for them to do that. Yeah. So unless our legislators do something about this, there's no doubt this will be to like the 90 plus percent degree be the predominant way that human beings will be working you know down the line here and whether they will be able to do that in a uh, i guess a more uh, in a better way than what is currently the case for the majority i think will depend on whether they will be able to unionize and uh, i think guess for unions this is their chance to really come back and claim a spot in in history that they used to have as well but have sort of lost over the latter years i completely i am blown away with some of the possibilities that are possible in the world of tomorrow and hopefully uh, we'll have better mechanisms of predicting disease and coming up with treatments and cures and things that are unsolvable right now. Like right now, I think we're literally at the mercy of many different elements around us and we're unable to do anything. But hopefully, hope is something, hope and action that people take is something that keeps us uh, going forward. Chris, I know we're limited on time and uh, tell us more about uh, Singularity University and where people can check your work out, uh, Singularity University out and some of the ways they can start learning and engaging with the university. It's a great time to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So we're an educational institution and our education programs focus on how to leverage technology to solve the really big problems in the world, what we call the global grand challenges. And you can check Singularity U Nordic out, SUNordic.org, uh, which is based in the Nordic countries here out of Copenhagen. There's an SU.org as well, which is, you know, global, if you like, but uh, what we do is, is similar. Uh, around the world, we have education programs to uh, help people understand technologies better and more importantly, understand how they can leverage the technologies both on a societal, organizational and individual level to make a positive impact in the world. There's also the podcast that I recently started in collaboration with Singularity University called the Corporate Innovation Podcast. You can find it on your streaming services uh, of choice where every week I'm talking to a world-leading innovator with a lot of innovation dirt under their nails to really understand how to think innovation in order to create 10x impact. So I could definitely recommend them to check that out as well. Amazing. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for your time and for helping us understand where we're headed. Uh, again, everybody grab a copy of Aftershock. It's available on Amazon. And it's really a great read if you want to understand what forces shape the future and what you should do and how things are evolving. Chris, Cannot thank you enough for taking out the time for us. Thank you so much. And you have an amazing time and hopefully we'll catch up in the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com. 